Hello, my name is Karis Abramson with an episode of Environmental Justice, Hot Takes in a Heating World. Before we continue, let me start by saying that all of the opinions expressed in this podcast are my own, and they do not represent the opinions of the University of Wisconsin. Today, I'll be discussing the relationship between indigenous peoples of the United States and environmental justice, and how it can be used to further collective continuance. Since the arrival of the European settlers to the Americas in the 1600s, indigenous ways of life have been threatened and transformed by settler colonialism. In the context of indigenized environmental justice, as we will further discuss, settler colonialism is recognized as a form of environmental injustice, which uniquely impacts and continues to greatly reduce the collective continuance of indigenous peoples to this day. In their ongoing struggle for collective continuance, indigenous peoples deserve the support of the general public, the cooperation of the United States government in recognizing tribal and indigenous sovereignty, and the meaningful and ongoing incorporation of indigenized concepts and lived experiences into the environmental justice movement. First, let's talk about who indigenous peoples are and why I'm using that specific term. According to the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, it is more useful to identify rather than define indigenous peoples, and as such, the UN has not adopted an official definition of the word indigenous. Instead, they list several key features including, but not limited to, self-identification by indigenous peoples themselves, the presence of pre-colonial and pre-settler societies, and distinct non-dominant cultures to help clarify who indigenous peoples are. For the purposes of this episode, I will be using the term in a North American context, primarily to refer to tribes and their members who settled and lived in what is now known as the United States prior to the European colonization of the Americas. Indigenous peoples in this context refers to Native Americans, but also encompasses Alaska Natives, Native Hawaiians, and other Pacific Islanders. While we're at it, let's go ahead and define our other most important term, environmental justice, which according to the Environmental Protection Agency, means the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. So that's how a U.S. governmental agency defines this concept. But what about those who have been affected by environmental injustice? Scholar of Indigenous Studies Dina Gilio Whitaker describes environmental justice as both a framework and movement born out of theory, activism, praxis, discourse, law, and policy. Originally, the environmental justice movement gained traction in the U.S. throughout the decades following the civil rights movement of the 1960s as a response to environmental protection inequities present in BIPOC communities. That stands for Black, Indigenous, People of Color, for those who aren't familiar with the term. During a time when social justice and equity were at the forefront of society's collective conscience. Before the conceptualization of environmental justice as a movement, members of the pre-existing environmentalism movement had been advocating for protections in the U.S. throughout the 20th century, such as the creation of the national parks. However, this pre-existing movement was led primarily by white Americans and failed to adequately consider the dimensions of race and class in relation to environmental issues. 
Gillio Whitaker argues in her research that the field of environmental justice needs to be indigenized. She says this can be achieved through the centering of indigenous experiences and analysis of the movement itself through the lens of settler colonialism, suggesting that settler colonialism should be recognized as an ongoing structure, not just a historic event. That's another important term we should define. Settler colonialism can be interpreted as a form of environmental injustice that wrongfully interferes with and erases the social-ecological context required for indigenous populations to experience the world as a place infused with responsibilities to humans, non-humans, and ecosystems, says Kyle White in an article from Michigan State University. This form of colonialism differs from classical colonialism in that it specifically aims to either subjugate or entirely eradicate the native population, replacing their culture and society with that of the settlers. A common narrative that was accepted among European settlers in North America was that the indigenous peoples needed to be saved by Christianity and civilized according to Western society. Settler colonialism has also been described as violence that disrupts human relationships with the environment. This description is useful for highlighting the fact that settler colonialism is in itself a form of environmental injustice, for it undermines the very critical interdependencies that have always existed between indigenous peoples, non-human life, and the ecosystems they share. Indigenous societies systemize environmental identities and responsibilities with one another through complex social, cultural, economic, and political institutions. For example, the Ojibwe peoples adhered to a seasonal round governance that would shift in structure and scope throughout the year in accordance with the seasonal dynamics of ecosystems to take advantage of hunting, fishing, farming, and other opportunities. When these aspects of indigenous societies were disrupted by settler colonialism, it hindered their social functionality and fulfillment of their needs, from the most basic to the most socially and spiritually complex. In that way, settler colonialism has acted historically as a direct threat to indigenous collective continuance, or a society's capacity to self-determine how to adapt to change in ways that avoid reasonably preventable harms. Such major disruptions to social life and societal self-determination have continued to obstruct new generations of indigenous peoples from successful collective continuance as they navigate the legacy of settler colonialism today. One of the most important topics to be addressed in the ongoing dialogue for racial equity and healing is, of course, environmental justice. Every institution of dominant American society and culture, such as our government, education systems, and corporations, is a part of the legacy of settler colonialism. They operate as constant reminders and enforcers of a way of life brought to the Americas by European settlers that forcibly replaced the institutions of native cultures. This means they are also continual threats to indigenous ways of life that exist outside of the social systems of Western society. In the United States today, there are 574 federally recognized tribal nations. According to the 2010 census, approximately 1.7% of the U.S. population, or 5.2 million people, identified themselves as American Indian, Alaska Native, or one of the two in combination with another race. Not only is that number over 39% higher than it was in the year 2000, but the U.S. Census Bureau estimates that by the year 2060, this number will reach 10 million people, approximately 2.4% of the entire U.S. population. 
There are also over 200 tribes that aren't yet federally recognized. Those who have been recognized most likely signed a treaty with the U.S. government giving up their land. Even some tribes who did sign treaties, such as the Chinook Nation, still failed to receive recognition, even though the government got their lands. What does it mean to go unrecognized? Well, during the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, it has so far meant not receiving any testing supplies or vaccines from the Indian Health Service. The U.S. government has historically failed indigenous peoples and tribal nations continuously, despite claims and agreements to offer them aid. In 1962, Congress authorized the Navajo Indian Irrigation Project and the San Juan Chama Project, dividing water from the San Juan River between the Navajo Nation and the state of New Mexico. The San Juan Chama Project was completed ahead of schedule 11 years later in 1973, well, the Navajo Indian Irrigation Project has yet to be finished to this day, over five decades after the authorization of these projects. This is just one example of the many instances in which the U.S. government has failed to deliver on promises it made to the Navajo Nation and all indigenous peoples. The Navajo Indian Irrigation Project failed to improve social and economic conditions on the Navajo Nation, and the tribe continues to struggle with severe water infrastructure problems. It also illustrates the role that racism plays in matters of environmental justice, such as water inequality. There's a term for that, which was created within the environmental justice movement to describe a phenomenon uniquely impacting racial minorities. Robert D. Bullard, sometimes referred to as the father of environmental justice, wrote this, Environmental racism refers to any policy, practice, or directive that differentially affects or disadvantages, whether intended or unintended, individuals, groups, or communities based on race or color. Environmental racism can also be seen in the lack of access to adequate health care that BIPOC receive and through practices of exclusion and restriction in environmental decision-making, boards, commissions, and regulatory bodies. Another example of one of the many forms that environmental racism can take is the proximity of communities to Superfund sites. For those who aren't familiar with the term Superfund, it is the common name for the Comprehensive Environmental Response, Compensation, and Liability Act, which Congress established in 1980. According to the EPA, there are a total of 1,327 Superfund sites actively listed on their National Priorities List which they use to classify and prioritize locations where there is environmental contamination due to improperly managed hazardous waste. BIPOC communities live disproportionately close to Superfund sites in comparison to predominantly white communities. One specific example of how this form of environmental racism impacts indigenous peoples is the Ringwood Mines Landfill Superfund site and its proximity to Ringwood, New Jersey, and the Ramapo-Lunape Turtle Clan Nation. What is particularly concerning and impactful is the fact that a study on chronic health outcomes in relation to the Ringwood Superfund site found that when compared with results of non-natives in Ringwood, Native Americans were more than 13 times more likely to face possible exposure to dangerous contaminants. The same study's results showed a strong association between self-reported Superfund site exposure and the prevalence of bronchitis and asthma. The fact that even within the local community, indigenous residents experienced over 10 times the likelihood of facing exposure to the contaminants coming from the Ringwood mine and landfill than non-native residents is alarming. 
in a research article from 2013 about how to protect indigenous rights, landscapes, and practices using environmental laws and processes, the author, Beth Middleton, suggested that current environmental laws are not conducive for this purpose. Analysis of a sample of four specific environmental laws and processes showed that while all were in partial alignment with tribal values, they all failed to some degree in serving the tribes without creating new barriers for them to face in the process. Middleton suggests part of the problem with our current laws is that they fail to properly account for history and the legacy of settler colonialism on indigenous land and life. She suggests that environmental laws and processes should expand to encompass a respectful, multi-generational form of human-environmental interaction embodied in the recognition of indigenous environmental knowledge and practice. Even the U.S. Borough of Indian Affairs website recognizes that Tribal sovereignty is limited today by the United States under treaties, acts of Congress, executive orders, federal administrative agreements, and court decisions. Indigenous communities and tribal nations cannot be expected to find solutions to problems rooted in oppression within the system supported by the governing body which has historically oppressed them. Sovereignty is a necessary piece in collective continuance and one of the ways that indigenous peoples can gain autonomy in dealing with the U.S. government. But what exactly does it mean? According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, sovereignty can be defined as freedom from external control. Other definitions also center around the idea of self-governance without interference from other sovereign entities. The Indigenous Environmental Network, a grassroots indigenous-led environmental and economic justice alliance, defines tribal sovereignty as the legal recognition in the United States of America law of the inherent sovereignty of American Indian nations. They go on to differentiate indigenous sovereignty as distinguishable from tribal sovereignty in that it is not a nation-state recognition of inherent sovereignty under nation-state dominion. They explain that it consists of spiritual ways, culture, language, social and legal systems, political structures, and inherent relationships with lands, waters, and all upon them. In one study on indigenous water co-governance in 2019, a group of researchers set out to document various ways in which Native American tribes are advancing tribal sovereignty and environmental sustainability through TAS. TAS is short for Treatment as State and refers to provisions by the U.S. government starting in 1987 as part of amendments to the U.S. Clean Water Act, so federally recognized tribes could begin to enact better water standards for themselves. The authors were also interested in whether and how indigenous self-determination can be advanced through existing bureaucratic and colonial governance systems. Their analysis showed promising results. TAS tribes developed water standards as high in quality as, and in some cases higher than, their neighboring states. It was also concluded that the tribes were able to self-determine standards independently from one another, surrounding states and the federal government. In the article, however, it is recognized that TAS programs do little to remedy environmental harm caused by colonial legacies. Finally, it is suggested that there are other types of work outside of federal regulatory policy that could be potentially more conducive to long-term efforts for indigenous self-determination. So, now we've defined relevant terminology, considered the historical context of settler colonialism, as well as the role the U.S. government plays in perpetuating its legacy, and looked at research on real-life applications of environmental justice work for indigenous peoples. 
Let's review and synthesize all of this information. Environmental justice is a necessary component in addressing the innumerable injustices caused by settler colonialism that indigenous peoples have faced in our country. Recognizing indigenous and tribal sovereignty is one way that we can help empower indigenous peoples to further their collective continuance moving forward. As individuals, we can also help through educating others in our lives to rally more support for indigenous efforts for sovereignty, as well as specifically around environmental justice, such as by working to further educate ourselves through reading, research, or even just listening to educational podcasts, expressing your opinions to state and local representatives on relevant matters, or casting your vote in relevant elections, and learning more about the challenges that face the indigenous communities and tribes in your area. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today, and stay tuned for another episode of Environmental Justice, Hot Takes in a Heating World.